to Get the Balance Right, a podcast for creative entrepreneurs who challenge the status quo. I'm your host, Heather Zeitzwolf, CPA. I'm on a mission to help and inspire visionaries to grow their firms with a keen focus on their triple bottom line. Join me for conversations with purpose-driven leaders, business disruptors, CEOs, and renegades in digital media, marketing, advertising, and design. Hey, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Get the Balance Right. I am your host, Heather Zeitzwolf. On today's show, we have a really special guest, filmmaker David Michael Latt. He is one of the co-founders of The Asylum, a film studio that is super prolific. They have produced and distributed hundreds of films, ranging from art house to mockbusters to TV shows like Z Nation and Sharknado. They've really carved out their place in Hollywood by focusing on the type of films that audiences crave. In this interview, we talk about movie trivia, juicy showbiz stories, and the insider scoop on movie production. This is a super fun interview, and David is so nice. It was so nice of him to do this interview with me. All right, enjoy. I am so excited that you're taking time to speak with me on my little podcast, and I'll try to keep this brief, but I have a lot of questions for you. You want to just dive right in? All yours for three minutes. Whatever you can do. Thank you so much for being on my podcast. This is unbelievable. Oh, this is your podcast? Oh, I need to call my agent. So if you excuse me for a second. No, it's all good. I, I love being on you. I'm grateful you asked. Thank you for, for asking. Of course, we're going to dig into Sharknado at some point in time. But I do want to ask you, how did you start this career? Of course, I went on Wikipedia. It said that you started the asylum in 97. But what was your past before that? Male prostitution, gigolo stuff, the same as every Hollywood producer. I'm very boring. I have always known that I wanted to make movies since I was three, really. It comes down to I, I had a Super 8 camera in my hand. By the time I was seven, I was making short movies. And uh, I just had this kind of singular ambition is to make films. And there was a point where I said, make movies or stop the pandemic in the future, uh, like inventing a vaccine for COVID. And I went, oh, I'm going to go uh, make movies. That sounds a, a lot easier uh, to deal with. Yeah, it's uh, it's been a very uh, rewarding life, committing to uh, the church of filmology. And, and that's uh, about it. I mean, it's, it's, it is very boring. That is exactly this, my very short story. Did you go to film school and then pack your bags and head out to Hollywood? Packing my bags to Hollywood is about five minutes from my house. So I am the rare exception in this town where I actually am from Los Angeles and I'm in this industry, which is very rare. I, I might be one of maybe a Three people that I know that have uh, you know done this, <clears throat> made this a career, and living in LA, and I've had no, I have no at the time no family in the film business either, which is also very bizarre. But to answer your first question, yes, I went to Loyola Marymount. I have a film degree, so I am, I am fully papered. I can do this, and yet still get sued. It's pretty amazing. But yes, they gave me a degree to do this, which is bizarre. It, it's one of those things where I was very ambitious. I did all these very ambitious things. And, and I think my parents knew that in order for me to graduate college, which was their hopes and dreams for me, they made a bet to me that I would never graduate, which was probably the right thing to do because I graduated simply because I wanted to prove them wrong. Quite frankly, that experience 
it, it did change my life in a sense because I met my partner um, while going to college uh, and he's been my partner for almost 30 years. It's one of those things. It had a very positive effect. Otherwise, don't do college. When you get out of film school, before you started Asylum, did you have to like work on films where you're like bringing people coffee? How does that all start? You have to have in a natural ability of disconnect with your hubris and your ego to the normal way of things. So I, I was a millennial before that was cool. I definitely was very entitled or believe that I was very entitled, but I was always producing, always putting together things. I was always good. That being said, I have done every single position on a crew. I enjoy my best times are on set. I truly enjoy every part of making a movie. And there's nothing that is more uh, prestigious or not. Being a PA, which I've done. Being a boom up, which I've done. Being catering, which I've done. Being is, is all part of the collective whole. And it's great uh, that I get to produce is, even, is a lot of fun. But I still do a lot of things that when things fall through the cracks, I do polish scripts, do visual effects, do editing, whatever it takes. We still have that kind of independent and gung-ho attitude with the company. That's so cool. Who influenced you in the early ages? I am old enough where my influences were Spielberg, Coppola, Woody Allen, Scorsese, good old 70s and 80s directors. That would be probably Lucas, these very big blockbuster studio films. That was definitely the inspired moments for me. It wasn't the genre films. It wasn't the low budget stuff. I had a snobby take on B-movies at the time. Again, hubris. And in fact, one story I I have told before, which is when I was growing up, I I just didn't want to be such a crappy genre filmmaker that I put Larry Cohen, who who made The Stuff and Q and Bone and The Private Files of J. Coover and It's Alive and all these movies as a point of, I never want to be that guy. That guy is, I, I don't want to be that, that schlocky filmmaker that throws it away out in this passionate artist. And the fast forward in college, I ended up dating Larry's daughter and just on one of those things. And she's wonderful, still is wonderful. And I got to know Larry quite well. The stories he would tell, his independence and his spirit and his love of the craft, which I thought wasn't there clearly because he was making million dollar films, not hundred million dollar movies really opened my eyes to all the different ways of making a movie. And this independent spirit was just so dominant in his life. He was definitely a mentor in that regards because it definitely changed my ways of thinking about things. And to this day now, from like that point forward, I always vowed if I can get to Larry Cohen's career path, I would feel very successful and honored to be in that same place. And I still don't feel like I have because what what he did up until the day he died was to make independent films and the film's that he wanted to make and damn everybody else. And he created a career and a fan base from that. It's he's a lesson of what to do in this business, not what not to do in this business. And so it gave me a bigger appreciation to the other guys, Sam Arkoff, Corman, Henry Hathaway, these independent uh, low budget guys that um, did it on their own. I I feel excited that I could be invited to the party. I still can't sit at their table, but it's, it's still, it's one of those things that it's just, it's great. 
it's just, anyway, so you're talking about mentors. That was an indirect mentor that really changed my focus and view about things. I love the stuff. And in It's Alive 3, I actually played an extra in that movie. Because again, I was dating uh, Melissa, his daughter, and I visited her on set and I was making a movie at Loyola at the time. And I'd already pulled an all-nighter and she's, could you just stay just to the thing? And then Larry's, David, get over here and be in. And he's going, I'm really tired. I just don't want to. It'll be no problem. Anyways, 20 hours later, I'm still standing as a guard and a judge. I barely could stand up. And I, I, anyways, so, hey, so I was an extra too. In addition to everything else in front of the camera, just doing all different uh, parts. When you started the asylum, how did that first come about? And what was your first movie? And I know you organized the asylum started with three people. If the, Is that correct? And it still has three. So the asylum came about like in 94. Six, uh, we incorporated in 97 because I had previously made a movie with my partner. We had made two films up to that point. We had made Sorority House Party, which was a romantic, sexy comedy for USA Up All Night. And, and we made Killers and we still had day jobs. And at the same, within the month of each other, I got fired from my day job and he got fired from his day job. So from there, we basically said, let's just start our own company. We started the asylum and he brought in someone from the company that he was fired from because everyone was let go from that company. It was Sherry, David Romali, and myself. And we worked out of my partner's apartment for the first four years, did everything. Anything that came to the front door, we took those as opportunities and started the company. Your films are mainly released straight to video or straight to TV. Is that right? Mainly, uh, although we've had some pretty good theatrical runs on things, but, and we've had TV series and whatnot. But when we first started, we were doing what's called production services where someone would hire us to produce a film. That'd be one thing to manage it. And then about a year into our company, something more unique happened, which is the company that my partner worked for, they were an Australian company and they got bought out by Warner Brothers. So everyone got let go. And the Australian people went back to Australia. We get a call about a year into our company from his boss, who's a big mucky muck in Australia and said, Hey mate, I got something going on here. I want you to do it. He started a business called first rights. And what first rights was marketing to video stores and video stores for your audience. Don't know it. We used to sell videotapes and rent them on, you know, a daily basis, like blockbuster. They have it over in, in Australia. They had a, a big chain and they marketed for every month. They would release first time filmmakers movies. And it would be something that, that chain um, announced it was a big deal every month at the two or three titles. He called us up because he knew my partner and said, look, I'm looking for a U.S. partner for this thing. I have a deal with Hollywood Video. And would you like to do this? It would require that you would have to go to all the film festivals, find movies and release them, be a distributor, not a production company. All right, we're going to we're not going to say no to anything. We met him in Portland where Hollywood Video was located and we struck a deal and initially the deal was two films every month. They would put it on an end cap, a big kiosk, first time filmmakers, critically acclaimed art house movies and whatnot. The first like 4 years of our company, we released about 300 art house movies. So if you looked at the history of the asylum, we actually started off in art house films. What happened was, that's, I gave you the end of the story, but during the journey of that, it was a quasi successful piece of business where I would literally go to all the film festivals, make deals with first time filmmakers and, and release two films every month to Hollywood video. And that did pretty well. And we increased to four videos and to six videos. By, by the end of it, we had 10 videos a month that we were you know, releasing, which is an obscene amount of, of movies to be 
collecting and releasing. And every filmmaker is nuts. That's, we learned that too. They're, they all think the producer and distributors are screwing them and they all, th- and they're all nuts. They're all, my baby, something happened in the middle of releasing these art house movies because, and you know, the art house movies were palm leaves with critically acclaimed and the floating heads and a lake. And that's the, look at how important this movie is. Everyone wants an art house movie. About a couple of years into it, Hollywood Video said, look, we need some genre films. We want them to be first time filmmakers. Could you do it for Halloween? Could we need some scary movies? So we said, all right, we'll find some scary movies. So we found some scary movies, put them out with the horror and the blood and and the knife. Those numbers like quadrupled. They were just like, holy crap, people don't want art house movies. Forget the, the art house movies. Let's go find genre movies. That was a little more difficult to do, but we did find a bunch. And even if we found an art house movie, instead of it being a floating head and on a lake, it would still be, we'd still do a, a campaign where it would be bikini girl with a bazooka and an explosion behind her. And it would still, without the critically acclaimed, and we'd call it instead of on the pond of my life, it would now be called bitches, 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 or whatever it was. And the numbers would go crazy. And we're like, this is a business. We really quickly learned to genrefy what we were doing and that really the audience was there to watch genre films. And that kind of got us into more into the genre business. And as that program was dying, we went to Blockbuster and said, do you want to repeat the success of Hollywood Video? And they went, not really. We don't like the first time filmmakers, but we do like that you could acquire movies. So we'll give you a two picture release schedule every month if you give us genre films. Because that's what really does the numbers. Forget the stupid art house crap. And we went, not a problem. It was a problem because uh, we were then competing with other companies like Lionsgate, a medium-sized studio here in Hollywood, where they would offer an MG, a minimum guarantee to the filmmaker. So they would write a check for $100,000 to someone and say, here you go. We can't give you any money up front, but we'll split the profits. We found that we couldn't find really any movies at that level because Lionsgate just kept going in there and grabbing them. A few months into the Blockbuster deal, we said, look, what if we make the movies for you? What if we get exactly what you want? So if you need a zombie film, if you don't have that in May, it's it's January now, we'll make it in May. And they went, okay, we don't care where you get it from. As long as you, if we tell you what we want, you'll go make it. We're like, absolutely, we'll go make it. That's what we did. So rather than acquiring movies, that switched us into a production company and we started making our own films. And that was super successful because now we didn't have to split the pie with anybody. It wasn't a huge pie to begin with. Now that we owned all the pieces, distribution side and the production side, it definitely made a lot more sense. And that is what built up the company more than anything else. We ended up making two films a month to this day. That was 20 years ago. To this day, we still make as a base two films a month. And then everything else is on top of that. So we have hundreds of films in our library based on that particular model. Hey, entrepreneur, are you stressing out over your cash flow? Are you always confused by your bank balance? Well, you know what? You're not alone. Lots of business owners struggle with this, but you don't have to. I'm Heather Zeitzwolf. Besides being a podcast host, I'm also a CPA. I can help you get your cash flow under control so that it's predictable And so you're profitable. Learn how by setting up a discovery call with me now. All you have to do is click the link in the show notes. All right, now back to the show. And then another significant kind of change that happened about a year into the blockbuster thing, I had wanted to make uh, War of the Worlds. Up to this point, they've been telling us what they want. But I'm like, ah, let's go make War of the Worlds. It's a sci-fi. It's public domain. It's one of my favorite books. Let's go do this. And, and my partner's like, no, it's getting released by Paramount. 
it's already getting made. All right, fine. So we shelved it, but I kept rewriting the script in December of 2004. God, that's old. It's a long time ago. I pushed my partner again. I'm like, would you just ask them if they'll make it? It's just, they're not going to make it. They don't, they're not going to do it. They're already getting made by the studios. They don't want to compete. They're going to fly themselves. Just, please just ask them. Okay. Cause he had the relationship with, with Blockbuster. So he goes to Blockbuster and asks them and they're like, absolutely. We want to make this movie. We're like, really? Absolutely. Uh, the Paramount one comes out on May 5th. Could you get it out by then? We're like, yeah. And I'm like, I see you've been writing the script. Didn't tell anybody. Yeah. We can be in production by January. We'll go make it. And the big concern was, what are you going to do when, when Paramount comes knocking? And the president of a blockbuster said, I'll tell him to F off that this is, it's not going to affect you. Don't worry about it. And blah, blah, blah. We're like, all right, you'll protect us. Like, yeah. Yeah. We're going to protect you. We're don't worry about it. So we go and make the film and sure enough, Paramount comes and knocking and sure enough, the head of Blockbuster tells them, all right, if you don't want it, because they threatened, said, if you pick up this film, we're not going to give you the real war of the world. So we're not, and Blockbuster said, fine. In fact, we're not going to take any Paramount product. <laughs> it was a showdown and Paramount blinked and we were able to release the show. And I think to this day, it's been our highest grossing one. And the reason why that changed the trajectory again is because based on the success of doing a film that studios were doing at the same time, it allowed us to make what we called mockbusters. And that put us into another different category. And to this day, we, we make mockbusters. We, you know, maybe about 20, 30% of what we do are drafting off of what the studios are doing so that there's more content out there in the marketplace. And it was just a big event that flipped us and, and allowed us to find different places to make money, exploit titles and find an audience. I know we don't have enough time to really dive into Sharknado, but how did that come about and how did that kind of change the asylum? Like every good Hollywood story, we stumble upwards. We fall down by falling up. That happened because we had a really strong relationship with Sci-Fi at the time, Sci-Fi Channel. And uh, we were producing shows for them, quite a number of them, probably like 30 by that point, where we were producing movies for them. And, and they had probably picked another hundred titles during the course of the years. We had a very a lovely relationship with them. We still to this day. In fact, we just got this email from a guy that had left there years ago, but he's on his own and you know he's very successful. Anyways, we were having dinner one time, I think at Comic-Con or AFM or one of the markets, one of the big things with them. And as all the conversations I go to, it was like, what are you doing now? And how could sci-fi be a part of it? Or how could we force you to be a part of it? from our point of view. And, and we said, we have a couple of things going on. One of them is this story called uh, Shark Storm, which is what our Japanese buyers wanted us to make. Basically, it's a tornado that hits Los Angeles, picks a bunch of sharks, throws them uh, you know, into the populace, and they have to deal with the sharks. It's a disaster. And the two execs, they were like, oh my God, we did a film a few years ago called Leprechaun in the Hood, and, um, or Leprechaun 4. And in that movie, there was a character that talks about a sheriff that talks about an incident that happened in the town hundred miles away. And it was horrible. And the incident was called, they said, yes, it was a huge Sharknado that happened and a lot of people died. And we love that phrase Sharknado so much that we wanted to make a movie about it. We had no idea what the movie, this plot about Shark Storm sounds fantastic. Look, we'll get involved. Sci-fi will get involved if you call it Sharknado, but you can keep your plot, your stupid plot. And we're like, Sure, we'll keep Sharknado. We thought it was the dumbest title ever. We're totally not going to keep that title. And um, but if Sci-Fi wanted to release the Sharknado, fine. We had by that point uh, worldwide distribution points that we dealt with internally at our company. We were going to release this Dark Skies or Shark Storm or something else. 
and uh, in sci-fi we could release this Sharknado, whatever. So we went off to make it, and the title was so bad that we couldn't get actors attached to it because no actor wanted to be involved in the show called Sharknado. So actually, a couple things about Sharknado, little trivia things. That's the first one where we couldn't get anyone to weep until I said, look, call it Dark Skies. And so it sounds like it's more like a drama. And, uh, and sure enough, we got everyone when we call it Dark Skies. But the other part of the uh, little trivia part is that our first go-to uh, director was a guy named Anthony Ferrante. And Anthony Ferrante had just directed a film for us. And I had known Anthony for about 15 years prior to that. We just keep running into each other in the same circles. He worked on some of our shows and just a super talented, wonderful guy. And we said, hey, look, we have this project called Sharknado. We would love for you to be a part of it and, and want you to direct it. And he looked at us and said, huh, Sharknado, huh? Yeah, yeah. And we think you'd be a great director. He goes, I wrote a script a few years ago called Leprechaun in the Hood. That's my turn. I'm the one who wrote Sharknado. And we're like, oh, he's the nicest guy in the world. There was no like lawsuit or anything like that. He just thought it was really funny. And we told him the story. Wow, he had no idea. We actually had to sell sci-fi on on Anthony. They they would not agree to him directing because he was a horror director. He only had done horror. And this was a kind of a campy action. And they were afraid that he wouldn't get the action. We're like, no, he's the guy. He's the guy. But because it was called Sharknado, we couldn't get any director attached to it. No one wanted to touch it. We offered everybody. No one wanted uh, to do Sharknado. Here we are like three weeks before we're making the movie. We didn't have any actors and we didn't have the director. In the meantime, Anthony is storyboarding everything. He's, I got this. I'm doing it. And we pitched him again. We said, look, we have nobody, but we're shooting in three weeks. Will you please approve uh, Anthony? And he's been the director for all six Sharknados and all around great guy. So those are your two trivia points on Sharknado. Sharknado, I think it's a great title. Obviously, it ended up being a great title. You have other really great titles. You have a lot of shark movies, the two-headed shark, then a three-headed. Now it's up to, I think, five five heads. No, I think six is where we're at. I love some of these taglines. Don't mix with the six. Sharknado 5, make America bait again. And the apocalypse has teeth. Who comes up with these these taglines? These are awesome taglines. So when it comes to Sharknado, it's definitely by committee. Everything else is done internally. Sharknado was the first one we had. But after that, when sci-fi really reached in and grabbed on Sharknado, it was the marketing teams and test marketing. And it was the real, like, we're going to really, you know, build this elephant camel crazy uh, contraption in order to figure out how to market this thing. At that point, it just became this beast. Specifically, on that would definitely make America baiting. It would definitely be sci-fi. It wouldn't be something I would have done. And, and by the way, you read a little bit of trivia, uh, which did make some news, is the reason why you have Trump is because of me, uh, because of my company. So you are welcome, world. Or tell me not to. No, what happened was in number three, I think. Yeah, three. We had a part for to play the president. And Ian Ziering had just done Celebrity Apprentice. And so he said, do you guys want Donald Trump? I could probably get Donald uh, to do it. And we're like, yeah, that'd be great. So go see if he'll do it. He called him up and Donald said, absolutely, he'll do it. He'll play the president uh, of Sharknado 3. And then we had to deal with his attorney, Michael Cohen, and who I'm not saying he deserves to be in prison, but he's not a nice guy. Uh, he definitely was the bulldog. And at a certain point, even though Don, Don already agreed, he was radio silent. And so we're getting closer and closer to the production date. 
And we're calling up his Michael Cohen. We're trying to find out what's going on. Finally, they get back to us and they basically said, look, Donald's actually thinking about now running for president. And so we don't think this is a, a good move for him. So we're going to say no to everything. We're like, okay, that happens. It's fine. So we went to our plan B, which is Mark Cuban. And, and Mark Cuban, totally different experience. Mark Cuban, nicest guy in the world. He has no people surrounding him. It's just Mark Cuban. You want him, you call him on a cell, you're dealing with him. And he knows what's up and what everything is. He wants the script. He wants this. Anyways, just a whole different experience. But once we got him to, to come on board, uh, Sci-Fi put about a press release out saying we Mark Cuban's playing the president. We get this extraordinarily angry phone call from uh, Mark Cohen going, what is this we're reading that Mark, that, uh, Mark Cuban is playing uh, the president? We told you that Donald Trump is playing the president. And we're, and we're like, no, you said he's running for president. He's not going to be in our movies president. He's going to be president and you're going to fire Mark Cuban or we're going to destroy you. You're never going to make another Sharknado. We're going to call up the head of uh, NBC. We're going to make sure that you guys never work in this town again. But we're like, okay, calm down. What have we made him the mayor? He is not going to be a stupid mayor. More colorful language. Okay, what? Look, this is Sharknado. What have we made him emperor of the world? It doesn't matter. Okay. If he wants to be in Sharknado, we'll figure it out. He's not going to do that. You need to be the president or he's not going to do anything. And if he's not going to be president, we're going to sue you. We're going to make sure you're not going to again. It's like, okay, sue us. Have fun. We'll catch you later. We'll, we'll see you in the courthouse. That was That's our Donald Trump experience. So there you go. You're welcome. Hey there, this is Heather. I hope you're enjoying the podcast. And if you are, if you wouldn't mind, please hit the subscribe button now. That way you'll never miss an episode. All right, now back to the podcast. One of the things that I love about your movies is not just the movie, but it's the previews. When you'd rent one of your movies, you'd get a slew of previews for your other movies. And it was so fun to watch. That was probably like the best part of the DVD. So now that you can't rent movies like that, what happened to all your ads? Like, how do people see those ads? You still make, produce those wonderful ads? Yeah, it's a really good point. And I don't have a great answer for you. I know that we have a YouTube channel that has our trailers. And I know that our website, theasylum.cc, has trailers um, of every movie. But you have to know these movies. You have to know what's coming out. And you're right. I don't, I, I don't necessarily have a great answer for you because it's not really being shown anywhere else. They're, they're used internally for buyers, for businesses, so that we can sell the content of the movie so the buyer doesn't have to watch the whole damn thing. But we have very good trailer editors in-house. And... They do a fantastic job and you bring up a good point. So we'll have to figure that one out because I think that's, I think it does get lost in the translation that people do like to see the trailers and they're fun to watch. They are that's, fun to watch. I, I, I will tell you, there's uh, my favorite trailer story is we did a, a dragon movie, which was billed as a family friendly movie. And my partner who has a very odd sense of taste on things at times included a movie trailer called Freak Show on it. Now, Freak Show is a modern adaptation of a film that was made by Todd Browning called Freaks. So it is a very disturbing look at kind of sideshow uh, performers, which is not easy to do in modern times because sideshow performers, most of those are diseases that were fixed by this point. So very interesting. Anyways, there's a whole other casting issue. But this trailer was a... It was probably a red band trailer. People were getting tortured in the trailer in a very horrible way. The last part of someone's tongue is getting cut off and it's in the trailer. It's, it's, it's a visual nightmare. I remember telling him we can't put this on this movie because it's a kid's movie. Oh, don't worry. I'll be fine. I'll be fine. 
anyways, the letters we got from parents, like, how could you put this? You know, I will never watch an asylum movie again. This was absolutely just uncalled for. And it was true because the kids are putting in there. And, oh, what's this movie? And they look at the trailer and they'll give them nine movies. I still have nine. Anyways, we never did that again, thankfully. I think the kids secretly love those previews. Oh, not this one. If you ever get a chance to see it, you'll just think it's it, it, It's so fun. It's, it's horrible. But it, I love the film. I mean, it is a film that I really stand behind. But the trailer's definitely not a problem. I didn't let my kids watch Sharknado until they were older. We did a TV series called Z Nation. I wouldn't let them watch it. I don't think my youngest has even seen it because it's so gory. It's very gory. If you can't do previews anymore, how do you promote your films? Do people, I understand if you go to a video store, you'd see them on display. So now you've got to grab people's attention when they're downloading movies. It, it is a challenge that all independents have to reconcile with and figure out. And I don't know if we've done a great job with it. We're a little bit luckier than most. We have a track record. We have a brand, the asylum. People know the asylum, whether it's art house movies or B movie horror or mockbusters or lifetime or BET or Christmas movies, whatever it is, there is a fan base for the asylum and they will watch our movies. It's not enough. We need to push it further. We are, trying to expand in different ways on those AVOD services so that we stand out a little bit more, even though we tend to be within the top 10 of these AVOD services, which is great because they have hundreds of channels and we're like in the top 10 every uh, every month, which is great. But you're right. At a certain point, we're not going to be. And we have to make sure that people are aware of it. We've never had a marketing team at the, at the company. We've never done publicity. We don't have a publicity department. We don't have a marketing department. Uh, it's all internal. It's mostly my partner who handles it, who's, I think, genius at this stuff but i think we trip into it and there should be a little more coordination with trying to push it out there but when the numbers are consistently good it's like how much more time and resources you have to push it even further i'm, I'm sure we're doing things that i'm not aware of since i bury my head in the sand and do production most of the time i get it and i think we need to do better in that in those i don't know i don't know how people how people know but you have to know the title in order to search for a title so how do you get people to know the title doing the mockbusters mm-hmm. i guess if people are searching for one movie they find yours and they're like "Ooh, this looks really good but not always the titles aren't always the same so they'll be close but not the same it used to be easy when you're at the video store you could see the titles but yeah, and then we used to stack the deck a little bit on these video on-demand services where if you, Americans are very lazy. We knew going in from people we talked to that if they don't see you in the first couple page runs, so if, if there's through the alphabet, the 26 letters of the alphabet, and you're calling yourself Mountain Men, they're never going to see it. No one's going to ever see that title. So if you name it Five-Headed Shark Attack and put a five in the front, that's going to be the top of the list. Those people will, will see it a lot quicker and want to see it and just lose interest after B's or C's. That served us really well for a very long time until the, the studios came in and said, time out, the independents are making too much money and they're, they're taking our pie. So we want you to forbid studios like the Asylum to use numbers in their titles. So we were banned from putting numbers in titles and therefore we had to like name up something in the A's or B's, but even then our numbers plummeted. And then the studios said, no, it can't be an A or a B. We're pushing in even further. Numbers that if we would have made $100,000 on, on a movie five years ago for that title, it's now maybe $500. It's like that dramatic. It's like insanely horrible because you have to know where the title is. But you have to know, oh, they released a film called 
the killer within. And I need to know to, to go to the K and find killer within. And you, you won't know it. It's tough out there. If someone went to search for one movie, then it's, you might like these. These are really sophisticated algorithms that those services know what you like. And, what, and sometimes our shows will come up and sometimes they won't. I think on Tubi, Titanic 2 is really is one of their biggest titles. And so I'm sure if, if Titanic 2, which stays up at a certain level on their platform of titles that you must watch, I'm sure other of our titles show up too. If you like that one, you're going to like these crappy movies as well. Yes, there's an algorithm that that guesses, but I I don't try to understand it because it's definitely a math problem that I don't get. And I'm sure if I figure it's like, how do you know that Sharknado is going to do well? I have no idea. And no one does. Now you have a channel, the Asylum Movie Channel. Is that available? Like, how do you get that? The Asylum, there are a lot of what's called AVOD services out there, which are advertising video on demand services. Now, this is a whole different department at our company. We basically have a channel on all these platforms, Tubi, Pluto, Voodoo, Roku, very odd sounding names that you get with your smart television or a different way of getting about it. it the easiest part about these is that there's an asylum channel, just like there's ABC, NBC, CNN, Asylum. You can watch our movies with commercials and whatnot. Some of these uh, services do not have a channel, but have asylum content. So they'll have a few hundred of our movies and you could watch and type in five-headed shark attack. You could probably watch it right there. It just depends on what service you have and some are better than others, but it is definitely this amazing opportunity for a company like ours that has a lot of library product, the stuff in the vault that just sits there and gets dusty, especially when the market, the the home video market, the DVDs, the video, all that stuff is gone now. What's taken up are these other kind of big channels, Tubi or Vudu or Roku and, and whatnot, that we can now take our library and monetize it in a way that we've never been able to do before. And it's been great. It allowed us to keep the doors open during the pandemic and still keep it open. We have about 20 plus employees and have for years. No one's been furloughed. Everyone still has their insurance. Everyone still has their 401k. And I'm very proud of that. I think we even gave raises this year too, which is weird. It's been a lucky accident to have this library as well. And uh, there's not a lot of company like ours where we have, where we own the content 100%. So it's easy for us to place it. We're doing well. And it's just getting better. The numbers are getting better. People stay at home now. So they're watching more of this stuff. And we're producing. We Over the course of this uh, pandemic, we're on our ninth movie. We started at the end of May. Yeah, it's funny because you hear, oh my gosh, they're starting to make movies. We've been making movies for months. Now. And we keep COVID safe. It definitely stresses me out. We have the corporate side. Those guys are all taken care of. But the people that I deal with on a one-on-one because I deal with production are mostly freelance you know, artists. It is very difficult to talk to a friend that's my age and they're freaking out because they can't, they have nothing saved. They saved a little bit, but not for seven months of, of unemployment. If I'm going to lose my house, I'm going to lose, I can't afford the food, my kids, and all the stuff stacks up. And it's okay, let's try and get back to production. Let's try and do this thing, but we got to do it right. We got to be safe. We got to make sure that, you know, people follow the rules and we keep really strict rules, you know, on the set with the masking and the social distance. COVID officers, I got COVID compliant. So I can be on set and I can wag my finger and tell people, no, you have to do this. And you know that, but we were trying to keep the doors open and trying to keep you know, our friends not becoming homeless. And I guess we can just we really want to be lazy about it or mean about it. We can just deal with the library stuff and on those AVOD services and not deal with production. We could make that our life in the next year and hold our breaths. But I think as a company, my two other partners and I said, this is probably the best course to go down, but it's not easy. It's stressful. That's for sure. Do you think you're going to do a pandemic movie or has that just been so overdone this year? 
our first few movies, we wanted to keep the pandemic theme in there because some of the people were wearing masks and we would allow the actors to wear masks. Uh, now no one wants to wear, you know, masks on camera. So we have to even make a couple of Christmas movies and you can't have people wearing masks in the Christmas. So the first few movies we made this year had a touch of pandemic storyline in there, whether it works or not. On your streaming channel, can you get the art house films as well? Some of them that we held on to, that the filmmakers, there's nothing I can do with it. So just put it, keep it in your library. Most of the filmmakers, most of them gave back because again, most of the filmmakers, my partner would, if the film didn't make money, he'd still say, let's give him some money. Let's, yeah. I'm like, but the film didn't make money. Said, yeah, but they, they spent all their money and they mortgaged their house. Let's just figure it out. We'll try, we'll make it up somehow. And yet those filmmakers will still say, you're screwing us out of the, out of it. There's no way that you didn't make $20 million on my video release and, and then start getting aggressive. Like, you're lying on the books. Yeah, we're lying to money that you didn't make. So the, the drama is just too much. Ones that are released for different TV channels. So you sci-fi and then you said Lifetime, you did Lifetime movies? We've done about 50 Lifetime movies. Yeah. Wow. They're fun. In fact, we're making one right now. I mean, as we speak. My guilty pleasures is Lifetime movies. We've done a lot for Lifetime. We've made a whole bunch of Christmas movies for Ion, uh, Hallmark, TV One. We've done a lot of thrillers for them. BET made a Christmas movie. Yeah, we have good relationships with a lot of them. So if you do a film with one of these other channels, can you release those on your streaming channel? Yeah, it it depends on, on the... Each contract's a little bit different, um, but usually having Windows again, because we own our own distribution angle and we have output deals all over the world, we usually build it within the contract where Lifetime or whatever could, could air it for a certain amount of time. And then we get the rights back and can air it the way we want to. That's the normal, but there's always nuances. There's always, we need it for Lifetime International or we need it for spot only or we need it for this i mean but but for the most part there's always you hold back some money the budgets aren't great they're not huge so you need to make them for a certain amount and then be able to exploit it out there in the world in different ways lifetime isn't going to write us a check to, for 100 percent of the film they're not going to say here and we just want it for a lifetime that's not going to happen so you have to always piecemeal it and make sure you can sell in this territory or that territory and go okay here's the total of how much we're going to make. So this is how much you're going to make. Wow. Okay. This is another just random question, but I'm real curious. When you build effects for something, do you reuse props or different types of special effects? Or is that just not done? I don't know how the real world works, but for us, there's props that we use for every movie. We have a whole prop house of guns and weapons and sci-fi things and monitors. And they're always reused. We have our equipment, camera equipment, lighting equipment that we use. And then visual effects wise, yes, that's the big problem because a lot of these shows have a lot of visual effects. So you have to, you don't want to reuse shots that were in a previous movie. So you want to change them up a little bit. It doesn't always work out that way, but we have a phenomenal effects team. It's four uh, people in the room and then usually add another three or four freelance for each movie. Some of them have won multiple awards, Emmys and whatnot, and they're amazing. Yeah, I just, I marvel at the quality work they churn out. On. If, if people knew how quickly we turn these things around, it, they'd just be floored. It's, you know, how little we make them and how quickly we turn around. I think they, I think it would just stop you in your, in your tracks because I think what we deliver is a good entertaining movie that doesn't look like they just did widgets and did it for the cheapest amount. I think everyone put in their all for every time we go and make a film. What if people are interested in sending in screenplays? Do you accept those or no? The the short answer is no, but the longer answer is maybe because 
the way that the asylum works is that we don't grab product that's already been produced, uh, written. Basically, our buyer, like Lifetime will say, um, okay, we want to have a woman in peril and uh, she's a teacher and there's a student and the student kills it. They'll be very specific with what they want. Even if we say, oh, we have a, a better script about a nanny who's having an affair, someone dies, we don't care. We just, we want this, this show. This is the same model we did with Blockbuster and everything else. It's just, what do you, you know, they tell us what we want what they want, and then we go and make it. The short answer is no, because we're never going to really take the other script that comes in unsolicited and pitch it to, to Lifetime. It's just not going to happen. Or anywhere else. I mean, I'm thinking on Lifetime, but it's all of them that we deal the same way. Where it's a little helpful is that if you, if this is really your life and you're a great writer, all right, we'll read it so that in the future when we have something that, that feels like it's going to fit in that space, we can turn around and go, oh, that's the person that's good, that could write this thing. And then we could have that conversation. We've done that many times. But it's never really because of the script that you said. I see. So really, all your films are just based on demand. The, the other real part is that we've never lost money on a movie because we know how much the buyer's going to buy it for. And we know how much we have to make it for. And we make it for more than what the buyer's going to buy it for. We're screwed. It's my job to make sure that we don't make it for more than what they're going to buy it for. And it's specifically because they tell us what they want. If we didn't make what they wanted, then we're in trouble. Wow. You got it all figured out. This is, it's a perfect system. It's a really good system. It's worked so far and it's kept our doors open. If you look in Hollywood, there are very few companies that have lasted as long as we, we have. And it's not without its own drama of how we survive in the, in the prostitution and the, the drug smuggling, but it makes for a good story at least. David, thank you so much for being on my podcast. I really appreciate it. I appreciate it more. I had fun. Is that it? I have five more hours. Thank you. It's great to see you. I don't think your hair is a different color, though. Uh, my hair is always changing color. It's good to see you in any color. Well, thank you so much. And now I'll let you get back to uh, making movies. Hey, this is Heather. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast. If you found value in the show, I'd really appreciate it if you gave me a rating on iTunes or just simply tell a friend about it. And if you're interested in learning more about my profit advising and coaching, please set up a discovery call by using the link in the show notes. All right. Thanks so much and see you next time. 